I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today, to talk about the Turkish elections, I'm joined by two guests. Izzy Finkel, who has written several pieces on Turkey for the LRB blog, most recently on the 19th of May, and Tom Stevenson, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece on the elections in the latest issue of the paper. Both pieces were published between the first and second rounds of the presidential election. Hello both. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Hello. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has won the second round runoff against his opponent, Kemal Kiric Darulu. His party, the AKP, and its right-wing nationalist coalition partner won a parliamentary majority in the first round. Erdogan has governed or ruled Turkey since 2003 and now looks set to stay in power till at least 2028. Was there ever a chance he might lose, Izzy? Well, Erdogan's government likes to pay very close attention to the symbolism of dates. So the decisive runoff was held on the 28th of May, exactly two years to the day after his government fulfilled long-held Turkish Islamic ambitions of building a place of worship on Istanbul's central Taksim Square. The 28th of May 2021 was the day that that was inaugurated. And one of the reasons that the location and the date of that mosque were significant was that it was on the very same day, the 28th of May in 2013, i.e. 10 years to the day before uh, Erdogan's election victory, that the Gezi Park protests broke out about the future of that square. Those protests, if you remember, were, well, they grew into what remains the largest popular uprising that has ever threatened the Erdogan regime, and therefore in the leader's mind, I think, formed one of its most terrible and terrifying challenges, at least until the 2016 failed coup attempt. But in fact, he did refer to those protests as a coup at the time. So winning on that day, on the 28th of May, I think has meant a kind of revenge for Erdogan against the forces that would hold him and, by extension, Turkey back from greatness. So, no, in a word, I don't think that there was ever much of a chance that he would lose a runoff held on that day. But I guess turning from narrative portents for a second to actual electoral mechanics, um, I think in the wake of what was for most commentators, and certainly according to the polling, a surprising outcome to the presidential elections first round a fortnight before, a victory for Erdogan in the second round was pretty much a foregone conclusion. I mean, one reason is that the after the president defied pollsters to come out ahead in that first round, the candidate who had stood in the way of his victory, the ultra-nationalist Sinan Oan, who creamed off 5% of the vote and in so doing denied either side a clean first round victory. His supporters weren't perceived to be naturally inclined to shift their allegiances to the opposition candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. And so even before Oan officially pledged his support to Erdogan, I think it was expected that his falling out of the race would benefit the incumbent. In in fact, as it happened, the proportions remained pretty steady between Erdogan and Kılıçdaroğlu from the first to the second. So there must, 
either have been a proportion, you know, a certain number of Oan voters who treated it as a protest vote. And for them, that protest shifted more naturally to Kulishtarulu or Kulishtarulu's strange and lamentable anti-refugee shift uh, in his rhetoric in the fortnight between the first and second round did genuinely persuade some of Oan's voters as it had been intended to do. But the, the final result in the runoff was a, was a Brexity 52 48. It, of... it was the Brexit ratio. And before we get back to or, or more about Erdogan, I mean, who was his opponent? Who who was Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu? You talk a bit about him, Tom. Sure, absolutely. Um, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu is or has been leader of the JHP, the Republican People's Party, since 2010, and has overseen a string of defeats, uh, with the single exception of municipal elections in 2019. I think he emerged as the candidate, as the opposition bloc candidate for a few reasons. Partly it was a result of the power distribution between the JHP and the E party, uh, which is more or less also an ultra-nationalist party, at the very least a nationalist-themed party uh, allied with the opposition. The leader of that party, Meryl Akshina, could not have gathered votes from the predominantly Kurdish southeast of the country in the way that Kulistarola was able to do. Partly it was also seniority, partly I think it was pride. JHP had tried someone else in 2018, Muharrem Inja, uh, and that had failed. Also, there weren't sort of many good options. Probably the natural choice would have been to build on the victory in the 2019 municipal elections when the opposition won both the mayoralties of Ankara and Istanbul and to run Ekrem Mamulu, the current mayor of Istanbul, more of a natural politician. But he faced a legal challenge and a court case drummed up by the government on very flimsy political ground that was designed precisely in order to head him off as a challenger. Which brings us back to the central sort of problem, which is that the nature of the Erdogan system and also what sort of race or context we really think was going on here. I mean, to say, I think probably the best thing that one could say about the opposition campaign that Kulistarola ran was that it wasn't clumsy. It was mostly positive for the parliamentary elections and in the first round of the presidential elections, it, it tilted more towards xenophobic nationalism in the second round for reasons that had a certain smack of desperation about them, but were understandable. The real dilemma for the opposition was to try to cut a line between the rising strength of the Turkish nationalist movement as a political force and the need to also garner votes in the predominantly Kurdish southeast very difficult problem to solve. I would say also that I am skeptical about the extent to which, whatever, however it played out, the main op Turkish opposition as it existed and as it exists, in fact, represents a coherent force that could be sort of slotted back into the state infrastructure and in, in doing so democratize the country, which was what they promised. The opposition bloc, the table of six, was always shaky, contrived, and E-Party and JHP both have internal identity crises in a way that the ACT Party does not. So that made it quite difficult. And um, Kulich Darulu has said that there were irregularities in, in the vote. But there's, as you mentioned in your piece, Izzy, that it's sometimes or often said of Turkish elections that they are free but not fair. Are there any grounds for his complaints or, or the, are the problems with it, the way in which it's the system favours Erdogan isn't about stuffing ballot boxes. It's a it's a more of a structural situation, isn't it? It it's sort of both of these. I mean, one of the reasons that I 
don't like this soundbite, as I think I wrote in the blog, is that it poses a sort of artificial distinction between different stages of the democratic process, as if the fact that no one's hand is guiding yours when you place your, in this case, metre-long ballot paper into the box has much meaning when the candidate you may wish to have voted for is in jail and another party's choice has been circumscribed by the fact that its most popular politician has a conviction that could, with a flick of the pen, end up with him being barred from politics altogether. Um, as Tom mentioned, these are elections where only one side is getting any proper airtime on television. And some voters, uh, I speak here mainly of Kurdish voters in the South East, they do successfully elect their candidate only to find that later he or she might be removed and a government caretaker appointed in their place. So I'm not sure either of the F words really apply here. Um, I think it's fair to say, which is not to say that Erdogan is not the most popular politician of his epoch, which is another thing altogether. And that's one of you know Turkey's many contradictions, the political system's many uh, contradictions. Um, one of the, to my mind, very interesting quirks of the Turkish electoral process is the incredibly high number of ballot boxes per capita compared to, say, the US, where long queues you know, attest to the fact that the ballot box to voter ratio is very high. A ballot box in Turkey might correspond to, say, a village or a few hundred voters. Um, I can't remember how many ballot boxes there are in the nation as a whole, but I remember seeing it reported after the first round presidential election, in fact, after both of them, that the irregularities in both the parliamentary and the presidential election had prompted the opposition to contest the results in 6,000 ballot boxes. Um, they formally raised objections in 6,000 ballot boxes, but that was deemed to be an insignificant proportion of the total. So that speaks volumes, I think. Um, the high number of ballot boxes has some very democratic implications. Uh, the elderly Teze in a rural mountain village with no means of transport may not have to walk very far to cast her vote. So that means that turnout is very high. But it also means that when a ballot box corresponds to a knowable social group, social pressure is much easier to exercise. You may not, for instance, as a family, want to accrue the status of troublemakers and be blamed for the few anomalous votes in a place where everyone has voted one way, for instance. So the forms of pressure that, that colour the outcomes in Turkish elections are many and varied and don't begin or end on the day. Right. So you can point to things like high turnout, which there was and which people have pointed to, but things which are the the form of democracy are actually masking a, a, a democratic deficit underneath. And maybe we should talk a bit about the, um, you know, we mentioned the leaders in jail, that there's the Kurdish leader, Demitash, is that right, who has been in prison since, since when, Tom? Yes, I mean, Salahattin Demitash is a very popular uh, politician, particularly in the southeast of Turkey, uh, although not, not only in the southeast of Turkey. Um, he is also a fairly skilled politician as leader of the HDP, which is has a, a sort of a dual identity as the party of the predominantly Kurdish regions in a ramshackle alliance with the Turkish urban left. Actually, it was sort of self-consciously built that way. There was an effort after the Gezi Park protest, which as he mentioned, to sort of forge an electoral alliance there in order to enter parliament and to advance a simultaneously a a movement in favour of Kurdish liberation rights and more universal values. Uh, 
democratization, um, social values, and so on. Many of them anti-traditional, but an interesting political project. Um, what has happened since then is that in 2015, Hedepe did rather well in the first par parliamentary elections of that year. And Erdogan and the governing system found that to be a significant threat. Uh, specifically, for, you know, especially fairly soon after the Gezi Park movement, uh, and came down hard on it, including forcing that election to be rerun in the same year, in the November of that year, 2015. And then after that, reignited and restarted a full-scale war in the southeast of Turkey. It is hard to imagine things getting much worse in the southeast than they have already gotten. The war begun in 2015-2016 was really quite severe. Um, though it received and still receives uh, much less attention than it deserves. The major Kurdish cities, the centers of Diyarbakir and Jizre, uh, and almost all of the city of Shernach were practically destroyed. Thousands of people were killed, some in horrific massacres. And then what has happened more generally is that in majority Kurdish provinces, there is close to a wholesale disenfranchisement, where Hedepe, essentially a Kurdish political party, uh, has won municipalities and mayors, the local officials are arrested, the government appoints trustees to govern in their place, who are loyal to the state, at least that's how the government sees it. And then prominent po politicians are harassed, even arrested, including Demirtas himself, who is currently imprisoned in Ederna in the far west of the country, about as far away from the majority Kurdish southeast as is possible, which is a symbol in itself. Yep. And Kulic Darulu spoke in support of Kurdish rights, didn't he? And, and Erdogan's response to that was to call him a, a terrorist sympathizer. I mean, there was this pivot, as you've described in 2014, 2015, against the Kurds, that before that Erdogan had presented himself as a, a, a peacemaker. Why did that change? Why did he, why did he make this pivot away from, from peace? In the early years of Erdogan's prime ministership and... Uh, later presidency, I think it was politically expedient that Erdogan was able to appeal as a mediator and as a break from the past. There's been, I mean, since really since the founding of the Republic, if not before, there's been a, a, a genuine problem of a state which conceives of itself as a nation state, in fact, having multiple nations within it. And that's most clearly expressed in uh, the problem of the uh, Kurdish liberation movement. So there were also brutal wars in the 1990s and other rounds of repression before. This is a, by no means a, a new phenomenon. Erdogan emerged and was able to say, look, I will be able to bridge this divide via religion and traditional values. And that worked right up until the sort of 2013-2014, when there was this movement to, to try to unite the Kurdish uh, liberation movement as a whole, or national movement as a whole, with the other left that was hostile to Erdogan. As soon as that happened, the response from the Erdogan system was to uh, cut off uh, any talks and negotiations with the PKK, which is, what everyone thinks of it, a major constituent part of the Kurdish national liberation movement, though not completely coterminous with it, and to initiate new rounds of repression, essentially falling back into the old mold. And the reason Erdogan was able to do that was that he combined it with, really, with a nationalist turn. Uh, in the first period, we might think of Erdogan as trying to bridge that divide uh, through social conservatism and uh, traditional values. In the second period, he was he moved instead to to appealing to the nationalist segment, sort of militarized nationalism, 
and would say, okay, instead of bridging the divide, I'll do much more efficiently than was ever done before the the military approach to the problem, the problem, and to approach it with with essentially with political repression rather than with negotiation. And I, I think that's also indicative of a general turn that has occurred towards Turkish nationalism in at national level politics, which is something that was became very visible in 2015 and has remained a strong current ever since. And does that nationalism get him votes in the areas well, and, and among the constituencies who vote for him? I mean, is that is that popular? Well, yeah, I think it absolutely is. I mean, so it's it's come in two forms. Firstly, there's na- there has been since 2015 an alliance between Erdogan's AK party and the MHP, the Nationalist Movement Party, which sort of plays to this partly ethno-nationalist, partly militarized, partly sort of I want to say sort of tough guy street appeal, which Erdogan is able also to play to. So uh, AK party is in alliance with MHP, the leader of which is a politician named Devlet Bacheli. I would call him the lump and running mate of Erdogan. So, for example, during the the presidential campaign, Bacheli would repeatedly call the opposition bloc, the National Alliance, which in Turkish is Millet Ittifak. He would call it Zillet Ittifak, which is a sort of juvenile pun, suggesting immorality and also a lack of masculinity. Well, that sort of thing is is popular enough in the Turkish nationalist movement, and it can be can be a vote getter. It can be appealing, and the nationalist movement as a whole at least a significant part of it, has supported Erdogan in important ways. Going back, for example, to the, the failed 2016 coup, the, the story very much became that that was a coup that was where the tanks and the army were sort of faced down by the populace as a whole. Um, and I can recall even sort of prominent academics shortly afterwards refusing to speak to foreign journalists and saying, well, you don't understand, as you see, we, we the Turkish people, are the sort of people who go up in the streets and face down tanks. You don't understand that. Well, I was out in the streets in that night, and I didn't see any of those people there. Who I did see were the sort of street local paramilitary organizations uh, of the AK Party and of the Nationalist Party, who really were organized and were out there from an entirely different social class. And they've proved a significant pillar of, of support, I think, for the government in a number of ways. Right. And in his first phase, in his early phase, I mean, he was certainly in the, in the Western media, he was widely praised for his management of the economy as well as other things. And that's no longer the case, is it? That since, um, you know, in the last couple of days, since he won re-election, the, the lira has dropped to historic lows again, against the dollar and other foreign currencies. And inflation's running 40-50%. And as you say in your piece, Tom, if the opposition couldn't win with inflation above 40%, when could it? So I mean, how bad is the, the economic situation, is he? Well, Erdogan is still as I think we're addressing, very good at winning elections. But his other great skill set, that of actual governance, is definitely rusting. And I think maybe the economy is the best example of this. I mean, the economic situation in Turkey has become extremely painful for a great many people. And the incredible thing, as Tom addressed in his piece, is indeed how little it seemed to matter at the ballot box. So Erdogan's uh, share of the vote was basically the same as it was during his previous two elections to the presidency. He was able to base his campaign on identity politics at a time when the economy was by most measures sort of cratering, which may hold a salutary lesson, I suppose, for politicians further afield. But 
first the economic facts on the ground, perhaps, and then I can try to speak to why it didn't seem to have so great effect or perhaps the most widely expected effect at the polls. There are many ways one could illustrate how much people are hurting. I mean, inflation is awful in Turkey right now. It is so bad that it peaked above 85% last year and then partly owing to the extremely high base effect from last year, it's slowed and come down to uh, about 45%-ish in the most recent release. It is so bad that people have lost faith even in those really dire statistics and Uh, There's now a parallel unofficial index prepared by independent Turkish economists who suggests that it's been higher even than those official statistics portray. So, you know, I guess I guess one of the reasons is that Turkey's so poorly insulated from the fallout from the war just to its north and the associated spike in energy prices in the price of the energy that it has to import from Russia. Turkey has a very wide current account deficit that by rights it should be able to narrow as the currency gets weaker and its exports get relatively cheaper in its major markets, by which I largely mean Europe. Um, But that balancing hasn't really been happening recently since the government has been intervening and spending Turkey's precious foreign exchange reserves to artificially hold the lira near about 20 to the dollar. It recently slipped just after the election. As you mentioned, it reached a new record low. But otherwise, they've had this in in advance of the election. They invested a lot of money in this very expensive, ultimately unsuccessful holding pattern. Um, and that's meant that Turkey's trade imbalances have dramatically widened. Another, and for many observers, the principal reason that prices are rising so quickly is that the central bank and the country's economic management more widely are these days powerless to resist some of President Erdogan's eccentric economic beliefs, uh, namely that you can cure high inflation by lowering interest rates uh, in defiance of economic orthodoxy. And that has kept happening despite his turning the country into a laboratory for those beliefs and things, sure enough, not turning out as he's predicted. Turkey's consistently been lowering its interest rates at a time when everyone else, when all other major economies have been hiking them, uh, and that's had disastrous results for people in the country. And then there's the fact that even before the devastating earthquake that killed so many people in the south of the country in February, that Erdogan was pursuing a very expensive and inflationary program of fiscal on top of monetary tightening. So Erdogan has his fingerprints on this economic mess uh, to some extent, but he also works far more visibly in the eyes of many voters, I think, to alleviate it. I mean, unsustainably in terms of Turkey's long-term finances and selectively to the benefit of his base and far more insidiously to that of his cronies in industry. But nonetheless, it's there. And I think that may explain some of the uh, contradictions that we've seen in the vote. I mean, he's the man who pledged to raise the wages of 700,000 public sector workers the very week of the election by 45%. That looks like the transparent, you know, uh, pre-election tactic that it is to you and I, but it is helping a huge number of people feed their families. And, you know, there was there was some offence taken by by Turkish commentators uh, 
the fact that he handed out cash to children uh, at the polling station when he went to cast his vote. Was this a violation of laws that prevent campaigning on the election day, people were asking. But um, the much larger bung to voters and voters who are actually of age uh, takes the form of this pay increase and of the two massive increases to the minimum wage that have taken place this year, as well as some further as yet unrealised promises to raise pensions. So I think ultimately many people see Erdogan as the hand that giveth perhaps slightly more than he taketh away. And, um, you know, certainly there are enough other people to blame for that second fact. And he was giving gas subsidies as well, wasn't he? Or or giving free gas to people who couldn't afford it. But the way that he was 20 years ago, he was being very highly praised by The Economist and by the Western financial press they've changed they've changed their tune but has he is it because has he changed his policies or is it or have they become disillusioned with him or or a bit of both i mean it's 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 always a bit of a bit of both i suppose but but there is a vocal constituency a very vocal constituency in turkey who think that the foreign press got this wrong, that they were too taken in by Erdogan's claims to be a pluralist in the early days. And more than that, that their adulation sort of smoothed his path, that it helped his ascendancy. And though they credit the foreign press in this version with, I think, a bit too much power, still, like all critiques of foreign correspondent myopia, there is a grain of truth here. I think he has changed. He he hasn't and he hasn't you know there are there are videos circulating of of him online recently from when he was first elected calling for lgbt citizens rights to be protected in marked contrast to this election where he made bashing those very same citizens a, a key rhetorical refrain um you know a key sort of part of his campaign rhetoric in fact even his victory speech repeated some of those slurs even if curiously the translation that appeared on the english language version of the Turkish presidency's website had omissions that made the speech seem much more conciliatory than it was but i digress um on that issue he has changed on the kurds as tom has told us you know i remember that early on in the sort of first decade of akp rule they implemented amnesties for people who were jailed for speaking Kurdish in Parliament, uh, for instance, as well as spearheading a peace process, which they then very violently abandoned. On the economy, the AKP got into power shortly after a devastating economic crisis and stuck very rigidly to the IMF stabilisation programme that they inherited uh, on their election in 2002. So they did strictly obey economic orthodoxy at first, albeit the kind that raises revenue through privatising state assets left, right and centre. There are other areas where they've changed. I mean, on the many emphatic steps they took early on to harmonise with EU laws in order to progress Turkey's now moribund EU accession bid, I think it probably is fair to say that there was a very different tenor to his first decade in power. Partly the electoral mathematics were more firmly against him, so he had to rule by consensus. He hadn't yet neutered the army, uh, which used to be a very big force in Turkish public life. He hadn't yet slapped the biggest opposition media group with a tax fine equivalent to more than the value of the entire company, and hadn't yet used the coup to shutter 150 opposition or independent media outlets. Uh, The Kurds hadn't yet 
betrayed in his eyes. Uh, the peace process he spearheaded by using their newfound freedoms to vote for their own candidate and not for him. He hadn't yet pushed through a change to the presidential system, albeit by referendum, uh, that put fewer checks and balances on his rule and made cross-party cooperation increasingly less necessary. He hadn't yet installed his son-in-law as economy minister and then replaced him with an increasingly compliant succession of yeah, ever more pliable yes-men. So that's very much been the direction of travel. I think that people who say that they knew this is where it would end up might have been right for the wrong reasons all those years ago. But Tom may take a different view. And of course, I mean, he should say that he, he used to be prime minister. He was prime minister first. Well, he was mayor of Istanbul and then, and then he was prime minister and then he changed the system to make the presidency an executive presidency. And because he did that during his first term as president, he's now able to stand for this third term because he claims it reset. So he's been able to rebuild the system around himself. You mentioned the earthquakes in February, which were in themselves devastating and thousands of houses collapsed and thousands of people died. And there was, but there, there was also the, the suggestion that the elections might have to be postponed, partly for what might be seen as good reasons, which there are more important things to, to concentrate on that the relief effort would have to take priority. And also for the less good reason that Erdogan was worried he, he might lose because there was a lot of anger at the deaths caused off by buildings collapsing because they hadn't been built to code because of amnesties in the in the building system, but also because of corruption, essentially. But the voting wasn't postponed, possibly because this date, the significance of this date, as you mentioned at the beginning, was too important. But also they didn't, those earthquakes didn't cost Erdogan the election. And if the economy being this bad, he still doesn't lose. This many people die, I mean, not entirely his fault, but I mean, in a way that could be seen partly his fault, and he doesn't lose because of that. I mean, what has happened to the to the anger that there was after the earthquakes? Tom? Well, I think that there was a, a strong argument made by supporters of the opposition. The idea was that this time would be different because Erdogan and the AK party burst onto the political scene at the national level after a devastating earthquake, uh, the Izmit earthquake, 1999-2000, which came to symbolize not just the destructive problem which Turkey will always face of being on two faults, but also the corruption and cronyism of the construction industry, which had so little regard for life. The AK Party is the Justice and Development Party. Those those ideas of justice and development were right there, right in the centre. And the idea among the opposition was that an earthquake had brought them in, and perhaps an earthquake would sweep them away, because the promises of reform had been so dramatically shown to be empty. Obviously, it didn't pan out that way. And I think one of the reasons, certainly, to doubt the confidence and the optimism that there was, was that the government had already made excuse for the postponement of the elections and chose not to use it, which showed a real degree of confidence. As to why it didn't happen, there are there are lots of things to mention. Obviously, there was a significant amount of disruption in the earthquake areas. Uh, people, an enormous amount of people, in fact, displaced still, of course, many dead, uh, who had had multiple times, in fact, to return in order to vote in their home constituencies and all of the associated sort of disruption that went went along with that. Obviously, we did not see the sort of swing against the state that the opposition had hoped for. Um, I think partly that that represented the fact that people will fundamentally accept that acts of God happen, 
even along with all of the obviously man-made elements of the crisis that there were. That argument simply wasn't convincing enough and we did not see a, a very significant change in the vote shares in areas that were more directly affected by the, the earthquake, for example. The other, I think, goes back to the simply the enduring nature of the system that everyone has built. Because as much as we have to put at the center the repressive elements of the state, which foreclose effective opposition in all sorts of ways, it's also, I think, necessary to to identify the strength of the class coalition that Erdogan has managed to marshal and that the Ak Party before him alone managed to marshal. Erdogan is able to appeal very strongly to significant parts of the population, especially the working class in central Anatolia, the Black Sea, and the exurbs of the major cities. That's he's, he's He can credibly present himself as both coming from and speaking for that constituency. And that is something that the opposition and its supporters in the intelligentsia and the, and the diaspora struggle with. Uh, and then to, to that must also be added the rich, at least the well-connected ultra-rich. In Turkey from the late 1990s and during the 2000s, a, a new tranche of the ultra-rich emerged and co-emerged with the Ag Party, partially supplanting the old quasi-aristocratic families who are best represented by the Koches, the Sabanjis, etc., who are still there. And this new government-connected ultra-rich are also a major part of the Ag Party system that makes it robust. Uh, incidentally, the surviving ultra-rich also mostly accepted the Erdogan system. So to give you an example, recently Istanbul Modern, an important museum, recently reopened after major renovations. When Erdogan said he was coming to give uh, a speech at the museum, which would speak about how art had been censored and repressed in the past, but now that he was liberating it, the Ejzaji Basha family, which essentially runs the museum, doesn't have much of a choice. It can't refuse him. But nor would it ever really have considered the kind of challenge that would have presented such a choice. And so I think that that class coalition between a significant faction of the, of the ultra-rich capitalist class and the working class in Anatolia and the Black Sea and, and the sort of the surrounding of the, of the major cities is something that is, is able to withstand even, even seemingly very, very adverse conditions as we saw in this election. And in terms of the, the cities that were destroyed and the people displaced, is there a rebuilding program? I mean, what's happening with the response to the earthquake? There is a rebuilding program, of course. It's very, very major damage. And there are still an enormous amount of people uh, displaced. There was certainly a lot of concerns about the initial the initial response, the extent of the humanitarian response. I have heard uh, firsthand stories uh, of people who were essentially stranded walking around uh, in the wilderness, had ever, you know, remote village or towns being having been flattened completely, who took multiple days with, you know, with people injured among them in order to receive any kind of care. Partly that's, you know, they, they live in remote areas and it's very difficult to do that, but there was no question that uh, there were there were real problems in, in, in getting them help. And that's something that goes on and will continue to go on and uh, will remain a major problem. It's a devastating tragedy. And also in, in the same part of the country where the earthquakes were, that obviously that they, they affected northern Syria as well as Turkey. And there are 3.6 million Syrian refugees currently in Turkey. As you mentioned earlier, that both candidates in the second round made anti-refugee rhetoric part of their appeal, if that's the word. How badly affected were those refugees by the earthquakes? And also what's, 
what's going to happen to them now? I mean, is, is Erdogan going to impose a, a mass expulsion of these millions of people? And I mean, is that even possible apart from anything else? I have a theory that the stereotypes that countries have about themselves are almost always false. Um, and in Britain, it, for example, it would be tolerance. In fact, it's Britain's, for the most part, a very intolerant society. And in Turkey, the stereotype is of hospitality. And I think that Turkey is, in fact, a very xenophobic society. It's something that is easily recognizable. And the presence of large numbers of uh, Syrian refugees from the war has been, I mean, a, a sort of a thorn in the society that is, I think, st it's still underestimated the extent of the of the anti-Syrian sentiment that is there. It has become almost inescapable. Uh, even in polite conversation with reasonable people, you can't get around it. You hear sort of quasi-fascistic rhetoric very commonly. The fact that on Sunday evening, as the truth began to dawn on the opposition media, the, for example, the television broadcaster Hal TV, the commentators very quickly, pretty much as soon as the result had to be conceded, started blaming the difference in the vote counts, which was in the millions, on the relatively small number of naturalized Syrians who were able to vote in Turkey. Uh, you want to say, come on, be serious here. But what that points to is that anti-Syrian sentiment has become absolutely pervasive, which has helped drive, firstly, it's helped drive a clear nationalist trend among the opposition, among the mainstream opposition, and also it has certainly conditioned the government's policies. Erdogan was able to run by pretty much saying that, I wouldn't put, call it exactly a principal position, but was able more or less to say that he would not be pledging to send all the Syrians home, which was more or less what the opposition ended up pledging. And he was able to, to maintain that, but he still said that he would ask millions of Syrians to return home. And I think that plays to um, just how prominent this issue has been. And just to give it, um, another example, I, I can remember being in Urfa, which is in the south of the country, um, a province that borders Syria in 2015, 2016. And I was refused service at a local restaurant on account, probably because of my appearance, that I was probably a Syrian and therefore there was not, there's no food for you here. Why didn't you check back across the border? You know, that kind of thing. Return with my partner and, you know, open arms, no problem. That's, that's, that's become a major sort of, a major theme and a major problem. And it, whatever policy the government adopts, which one would think it would be completely impractical to even talk about mass expulsions, not going to work, no matter what anyone, whether anyone thinks it's a good soundbite or not. Uh, this is something that's going to remain a major subject for, for many, many years. I mean, is there a, a, an appeal to a sort of an idea of Ottoman plurality and tolerance and that in, because doesn't in some ways Erdogan try and present himself as a very much not not the heir to Ataturk, but sort of going back to an older idea of a of an Ottoman Turkey, or is that that was very much the sort of rhetorical framework of the first ten years of AKP rule, but I think sort of neo Ottomanism has been jettisoned as as a rhetorical framework lately, with the you know because of the rightward lurch that Dom has spoken so eloquently and written in the magazine about i mean it's sort of kind of ottoman pluralism was the was the part of that myth that was so powerful then but pluralism isn't really something that uh the turkish government seeks to aspire to anymore i mean the i don't know the the, the turkish anthropologist esra uzdurek has a essay 
it's almost 20 years old now that I always think about in this context. Uh, it's on the politics of public memory in Turkey. And it troubled the dominant notion that Ataturk was a sort of, uh, you know, the founder of the country, that he was a uniquely secularist emblem. Um, in fact, she showed how both secularists and Islamist factions in Turkish politics both claimed legitimacy through Ataturk's name, only they allied themselves with a very different version of Ataturk when they did so, so that, you know, there are enough photos of him, enough speeches you can cherry pick, you know, to, to say either he founded what was meant to be a pious nation or he founded a country that was formed in opposition to those pieties. But but either way, he is or he was then the sort of unitary emblem, the umbrella discourse in which all claims to nation and nationalism had to take place. And I suppose Ataturk is a less potent symbol now than he was then. But the logic sort of remains. And Turkish nationalism is sacrosanct in its Ottoman flavours uh, that Erdogan has championed or otherwise. I mean, the, the, the day after I spoke about the symbolism of the 28th of May, even the, the very day after has its own set of symbolisms. It, it uh, The 29th of May, 470 years ago, I think precisely, uh, is the date of the conquest of Istanbul, what uh, the losing side likes to refer to as the fall of Constantinople. And Erdogan uh, definitely marshaled all of that symbolism in celebrating his victory. He uh, went to pray. He celebrated on that day by praying at the Hagia Sophia, which was a church and then a mosque and then Ustrup converted it into a museum. And one of Erdogan's proudest achievements is to have uh, turned it back into a mosque, which he, he did very recently. So, you know, uh, there are many, many forms of Turkish nationalism, but it's in either case, it's sort of sacrosanct both sides claim it. Each side claims that the other doesn't have it. Uh, for the CHP, they highlight the government's religious or anti-democratic character and the government, uh, like populist majoritarians everywhere, points out how out of touch the secularist so-called elites are, that they've lost faith with and the faith of the working people. Um, the opposition's refusal to champion religious rights is part of that in their telling and that their alliance with the Kurds, you know, even in its very informal iteration that we saw in this uh, election, that it's designed to split Turkey into two or more pieces. I spoke to an AKP voter before the election who told me that if the opposition won, the country would be split into 27 pieces by the great powers, which is an old talking point, but one I hadn't heard so cleanly um, expressed uh, of late. So... There are many competing nationalisms in Turkey, but the thought of an election held outside of their umbrella isn't really possible. I mean, you notice how Erdogan framed his victory as a two-fingered salute to the foreign powers in his speech on Sunday night. This is on the centenary of the nation. Turkey's not a young or fragile country anymore. But of course, many people would credit that last fact to the doughty leadership of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's now stewarded it either as prime minister or president for a quarter of that time. Looking ahead, I mean, he has, he's survived massive popular protests, as we've discussed. He's survived military and attempted military coup. He's survived huge earthquakes. He's survived an electoral challenge, the strongest electoral challenge that 
he seems to have faced since coming to power. I mean, where might a successful challenge to Erdogan come from? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think it would probably require a reconfiguration of some sort, which really got to grips with the class coalition that Erdogan has managed to build. Not easily done. Uh, and then, of course, has to face with the the sort of the repressive element of the state, which is now very considerable. The Erdogan system is very well integrated into all the organs and institutions, army, police, civil service, regulatory bodies, judiciary, and so on. And it, it is it is marked, certainly. Uh, I think that one thing that can be said is that we've begun to see, I think, a bifurcation between Erdogan himself as a personal figure and the Ag Party, which will eventually cause a succession problem of some sort, which Erdogan himself sort of perhaps unintentionally pointed to when uh, he celebrated the results on Sunday in, in Istanbul by saying to his supporters, we'll be together to the grave. Izzy Finkel, Tom Stevenson, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Izzy Finkel's pieces on the LRB blog and Tom Stevenson's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Neil Asherson on 1848 and Emily Wilson on Epictetus. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.